we have been studying the book of Revelation, and I want to give you a brief review as to where we are. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 11, but how did we get to where we are? Well, just a few brief highlights. There's no way to possibly recap all that we've studied in just a couple minutes here and move forward with more, so we're going to go rather quickly, but as you recall, our effort this quarter is not to be an exhaustive study of the book of Revelation. It's not the 400-level class, it's the 100-level class. This is Intro to Revelation, Survey 101, whatever you want to call it. It's the big overview of the book and not every detail. However, that overview gives us the correct framework. When we go back and study the details, we have the right endpoints and bookends to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, it starts off at the very beginning. It's called the revelation of what? Jesus Christ, because the book's center and circumference, everything all the way through, is all about Jesus Christ. At the very beginning of the book, in fact, just go there if you would very quickly, Revelation chapter 1, in that introductory statement, it's Jesus himself who explains the purpose of the book of Revelation. A, it's to reveal himself, and it's from himself, but it goes on to say in Revelation 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. So that means things that have not happened yet, but are going to take place in the future. Revelation is a book of prophecy. And again, later in the same chapter 1, we see in verse 19, Jesus, now speaking to the seven churches, he says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So we have the very concrete thing that Jesus himself says. The book of Revelation begins in the time of the prophet who's writing. In this case, it's John, the prophet, the revelator, the apostle John. Then, and it goes forward to things that would take place future from his time, many of which for us are past, right? Some of which are still to come. Basically, the outline of the book of Revelation begins in the, book of, uh, in the time of John, the prophet, and extends all the way to the end of time. Now, I believe we're living much, much closer to this end than we are to this end, right? There is a lot that has transpired, but we have not reached the end of time yet, but we're in the time of the end when end-time events are starting to unfold before our very eyes. So the book of Revelation, though it was future to the time of John, is pertinent particularly to our day because I believe we're living in the time of the end. Now, like its Old Testament apocalyptic predecessor, the book of Daniel... The book of Revelation contains several parallel prophecies that begin, again, in the time of the prophet and extend until the end of time. Now, in Daniel, you recall, you saw the image, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and it outlines world history, and then it repeats that history in Daniel 7, then it repeats the same history in Daniel 8, but each time it adds detail towards the end of time, it repeats and then enlarges the same thing you see in the book of Revelation. Seven churches cover that same time frame from John to the time of Jesus, second coming, with no transact, no stopping in between, just boom, 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 boom. The seven seals cover that same history, but they pause around the time of the sixth seal to give you a picture of the 144,000, and then it tells you the seventh seal. Then it repeats again the seven trumpets, and this time at the seven trumpets, it pauses at number six before the sounding of the seventh to give some added detail. And what we find inside of that pause, inside of that set of parentheses, before the sounding of the seventh trumpet, is Revelation chapter 10 and the bulk of Revelation chapter 11. Last Sabbath, we studied Revelation chapter 10. It describes the experience of Christians 
living during that time, just before the coming of Christ, who, based on their understanding of Bible prophecy, as you recall, John was instructed basically to live out this experience that the believers would have, and he was instructed to take a little book and do what with it? Eat it. means to digest it, take it in, and spread a message based on it. That's exactly what happened to Christian believers in that time period in earth's history. Based on their understanding of the Bible prophecy, they were convinced that Jesus would return about the year 1843 or 1844. Finally, when setting a date on October 22, 1844, their highest hopes were greatly disappointed when Jesus did not return. However, the Lord soon revealed to them that their error lay not in a miscalculation of time, but in the event itself, the understanding of what actually transpired. Jesus did not come to the earth as king. He went into the most holy place as high priest to begin his most holy place final judgment work. Which brings us to the other item highlighted as pertinent, apparently, inside of the set of parentheses, the contents of Revelation chapter 11, which will be the burden of our study today. But before we begin the study, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your word to study and the guidance of your Holy Spirit to interpret it and make it plain to us today. Lord, do you understand we're studying some prophecies with symbolic language, but we understand there's a real meaning to it and there's a genuine application for us today. Help us to see it. Help us to understand it. And through your Holy Spirit, help us to live the life you want us to live. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 1. Again, keeping in context what we just studied in Revelation 10, uh, it wasn't the return of Jesus that occurred. It was the transition of Jesus from the holy to the most holy place that was the concern. And now we see in chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. Now let's pause right there. In chapter 10, Daniel was given something. What was it? A little book. And what was he supposed to do with it? Eat it. So he was given an object and an action to go along with it. Here you see the same thing now in Revelation chapter 11. This time it's a reed like a measuring rod, and he was told to do something with it. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, I will tell you, I don't believe, and I believe the context will help us out here, I don't believe that this measuring rod is a length like inches or feet or yards or cubits, right? It's not a measure of quantity, it's a measure of quality. For instance, just the dimensions of the temple, they were already written down in the Old Testament. This is not what he's looking for. He's looking to measure the quality therein. It's a qualitative measure, not a quantitative measure. Because notice it says here, to measure not only the temple and the altar, but also those who worship there. The worshipers themselves were to be measured against this standard, against this reed. And I don't believe that, again, he's looking to measure like a seamstress their girth or their height, you know, We're talking about a qualitative measure that God wants done now of his people. Arise, measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. Then it says in verse 2, But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. At this point, it would be a good idea for us to realize that the book of Revelation is not only centered on the person of Jesus, 
but it's also saturated with the language of his position and placement as our priest in the heavenly sanctuary. The book of Revelation is replete with references, allusions, and direct comments on the sanctuary in heaven. For instance, right back in Revelation chapter 1, where we're introduced to Jesus Christ, we see him walking among the seven lamps that are burning, right? The seven lampstands. In Revelation chapter 5, you see Jesus coming into the sanctuary as a lamb having been slain, right? This is clear sanctuary language. He comes before the throne. In fact, um, what's fascinating about this is that, remember in Revelation 4, when it describes the court of God, you have the seat of God, and then you have the seven lamps burning before his throne. This is very much an allusion to the sanctuary, but there is no Jesus. And in Revelation 5, Jesus shows up looking as a lamb that has been slain, right? The mind is taken back to the sanctuary process, and what's fascinating is that the sanctuary is the template around which the book of Revelation is written. And, of course, the sanctuary is always pointing to Jesus Christ. Let me explain a little bit more. In Revelation chapter 5, again, when we had seen Jesus looking as a lamb having been slain, in fact, let's just turn there very quickly. I want to bring to your mind another thing we've already studied. We'll go to verse 6. Right after John was weeping and weeping about no one was able or worthy to open the scroll and loose its seven seals, one of the elders tells John, don't weep. It says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And we read in verse 6, and I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a what? Lamb, as though it had been slain. And then it says, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And in our previous study, we noted that what the experience being described in Revelation 5 is in heaven was the exact same experience that was recorded in Acts chapter 2 occurring on the earth. In fact, right now would be a good time. Go back to uh, to Acts chapter 2. Peter himself explains the significance of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Again, as we saw in Revelation 5, when Jesus returns, looking as a, like a lamb having been slain, immediately the seven spirits of God are sent, and they're sent not just generally out to the universe, but they're sent out into all the earth. They're sent to the earth on a mission. Okay? In Acts chapter 2, they receive the Holy Spirit from heaven, and they ask the question, what does this mean? And we cannot emphasize it enough. enough. The day of Pentecost was not centered on the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost was about Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit was simply a signal that Jesus had entered his new phase of ministry. Peter makes this clear. Acts chapter 2, look at verse 33. After going through a long scripture to make his point, he comes to the punchline. Well, in fact, let's, 32, watch this. This Jesus, notice he's speaking about Jesus, God has raised up, and notice what he says, of which we are all what? Witnesses. Had the disciples seen Jesus' ministry firsthand? Yes. Had they seen his death occur? Yes. Had they seen his resurrection? Yes. Jesus came back to them and said, you can touch my scars. You know it's me. In fact, he spent 40 days with them in his resurrected, glorified self. So he comes back. They are all witnesses of his life, his death, and his resurrection. But now let me ask you a question. After he ascended into heaven, could they see what he's doing anymore? No. Watch this now. Again, verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, verse 33, 
being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the being able to see it and hear it, the visible evidence was not about the Holy Spirit. It was simply a signal that Christ had entered his new phase of ministry in heaven. And when Christ was accepted by the Father, he now receives in exchange the gift of the Holy Spirit and sends him out to tell his people that I am at the right hand of the Father now. That Christ moved from one heaven to one place to another. Now think about this. What's fascinating about this, of course, all the things that happened on earth, the, the disciples were first-hand witnesses. They said, we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. But everything that transpired in heaven, they're not first-hand witnesses. They have to rely on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the signal. They have to rely on the Word of God to trust that what's going on in heaven is actually going on. They have great reason to believe it's true because they've seen all the things leading up to it, but they cannot peer into heaven and look into the sanctuary of God and see Christ anymore. They only have his representative, the Holy Spirit. Now, why am I emphasizing this point? Let's think about the structure of the sanctuary. Oftentimes, we think of the sanctuary consisting of three compartments. And while that's physically true, there is one other phase of Christ's ministry involved here. We typically think of the court, the courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place, right? But Christ, where was the lamb born and raised? Was it born and raised in the courtyard? No. It was out in the camp amongst the people, right? It lived in a world. It grew up. In fact, the bulk of Jesus' life, because, of course, the lamb represents Jesus all the way through, does it not? The bulk of Jesus' life, the vast majority of it, the first 30 years, were not in ministry, per se, in a public way. It was living and being raised out in the camp among the people. And of course, in the symbolic, uh, in, the, in, the, in the representation in the Old Testament, the lamb would be raised by the, out in the camp and then brought to the sanctuary where its ministry, its spiritual application would be done, right? There it would have its, it would have a little short time of life where it would have the, the weight of the sins placed upon it, transferred the guilt from the sinner to the sacrifice, to the substitute, and then it would be sacrificed on the altar and shed its blood for the remission of sins. And let me ask you a question. All the way through this process, has the sinner been there to witness the ministry of the Lamb? Yes. It raised the Lamb, correct? It brought the Lamb to the place. But did it just drop the Lamb off at the door, or did it go into the courtyard? The sinner goes into the courtyard, yes. He has to lay his hands personally on the Lamb. Then he has to take the knife and do the actual dirty work of slaying the Lamb. Now let me ask you a question. When the blood is shed, does the sinner then take that blood into the holy place? No. Who does that? The priest. There's a transition, right? And you notice that there's a veil between the holy and the most holy, the holiest places of the sanctuary, and the courtyard and the camp. The sinner can live in the camp, and when he needs the ministry of the Lamb, can go into the courtyard, but he can never go into the holy place. They need the ministration of a priest to go into the holy place on his behalf. The veil would be shut. Now, it's fascinating to me, the scripture, though most of Christianity thinks that, you know, all you need is the altar, just die on the cross. Apparently, after the cross, Christ had a ministry still to go, right? He becomes the priest who takes that blood into the heavens, the true sanctuary, 
and then becomes the high priest at the end of the, of the process. Okay? Now, I bring this out because it's fascinating that the camp and the courtyard are all the places the sinners can go, and in this timeline, which of course the sanctuary process is merely a timeline, it's an outline of the chronological ministry of Jesus. He's born and raised, he goes into his ministry, he's the substitutionary atonement, he's the sacrifice on our behalf, then he's raised up again, he goes into the holy place as a priest with his own blood to offer, then he goes into the most holy place, and when that's concluded, he'll come back out again. Right? The entire sanctuary system was a chronological outline of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. The camp represents the earth. The court also represents the earth because the altar that the lamb was, was slain upon represents the actual cross of Calvary, does it not? All of this happened on the earth. The disciples could say, we saw that. We were there. But when it transitions to a priest taking that blood into the holy place, they can't go there. They have to trust by faith that what was started here continues there. And Jesus understands that and sends out the Holy Spirit as evidence that I've been accepted into this role as priest now, interceding. Thus they can, you notice the apostles write differently after that. Always they have confidence to come boldly before the throne of grace because we have a friend in Jesus. Because we have the sacrifice of Jesus who is with us and we know he's there now. By faith we walk. Now, that's an interesting thing to me, and it's an important thing to bring out at this point. Here in Revelation chapter 11, in verse 2, it gives us a time marker as to what phase of this sanctuary ministry we're talking about here. Go back to Revelation, if you would, please. Revelation chapter 11. Again, we'll just start with verse 1. We haven't gone very far. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And I'll just go ahead and give away the punchline. Revelation 11 describes this reed. It's a description of the measuring standard. We'll come back to that in a minute. And he's told to rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is, an out, is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And where's our time marker? Well, here it comes. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, why is that 42 months so significant? Well, read the next verse. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, Again, just like the contents of the little book, which John was supposed to eat in chapter 10, here the measuring rod that John is instructed to use becomes the central focus of chapter 11. He's told to take this measuring rod, and I believe that's exactly what he's talking about with the two witnesses, or the two olive trees, the two lampstands that we're going to see. His witnesses are this measuring rod. And again, we have this mention of a time prophecy 42 months or 1,260 days. Now, as we've mentioned previously, the book of Revelation, I believe, is placed at the end of a Bible on purpose. Okay? I think everything in the Bible is there on purpose. I'll just throw that out there. You know? But there's a particular significance to why it comes here. 
A, it's dealing with the last things, and that makes sense, but it also assumes that the reader of the book of Revelation has already read all the books that come before it. Right? So when it makes mention of things like Sodom or, or Egypt or Jezebel or Babylon, these are all Old Testament previously mentioned things in Scripture. And here, for instance, like we saw in Revelation chapter 10, that little book that contained a time prophecy that would be expired during this time, well, there's only one book in the Bible that has that. That's the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, the 2,300-day prophecy. Okay, that's what we're looking at Daniel chapter, I mean, Revelation chapter 10. Here in chapter 11, it makes another reference, surprise, surprise, back to the book of Daniel. 42 months or 1,260 days. Have we ever seen 1,260 days before in prophecy? Yes, we have. What book? Daniel. Now, here's your extra credit. What chapter? Oh, good. We get to review. Okay. The very first mention of this time period of 1,260 days comes from Daniel chapter 7 in reference to the little horn power that would rule for 1,260 days, or as it's mentioned there, time, times, and half a time, right? Now, this, interestingly enough, what you find in Daniel and Revelation, this 42 months or time, times, and half a time, 1,260 days, or literally 1,260 years, is the most often mentioned time prophecy in all of Scripture. It's mentioned far more than the 2,300 days. Now, that's not putting down the 2,300 days. Please understand. I'm just saying that the Bible, in both apocalyptic books, comes back again and again and again. For instance, the first time it's mentioned is in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Time, times, and half a time. You see it again in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, that's in its conclusion, verse 7. Time, times, and half a time. Revelation chapter 11, verse 2, we just read, 42 months. Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, uh, 1,260 days. You're going to see it again next week, just so you know what's coming. (laughs) Chapter 12 and verse 6, 1,260 days. Then again, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 14, time, times, and half a time. Revelation 13 and verse 5, 42 months. The same time period is mentioned over and over in the books of Daniel and Revelation. It's as if the Lord wants us to pay attention. And it gives us a time stamp as to when these events are occurring during this time, times, and half a time. That the two witnesses, or this measuring rod he was given, would prophesy, but in what condition? Look back at 11 verse 3. In sackcloth. Sackcloth is often, or as far as I understand, always referred to in a time of mourning or sorrow or some sort of distress and trouble and tribulation. It's a time of difficulty, right? If you were mourning the loss of something, you dress in sackcloth and put ashes on your head, this kind of thing. And here, the prophet of God, this two witnesses of his, I believe this measuring rod, is going to have power, but it's going to be clothed in sackcloth while it's doing it. It's going to be a time of difficulty, a time of mourning when it's going to occur. It goes on to outline in verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the, the, the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. There's power in this witness, these two witnesses. Now, what's interesting is during this time of 
42 months or 1,260 days, if we have already studied Daniel, which Revelation assumes that we have, we've already established when this time period is. It's from 538 A.D. to 1798 A.D., the time of the Roman Catholic papal persecution and their rule over the Christian world. for 1,260 days. Now, how is it possible that during a time of Christian rule, the Bible could be trampled underfoot, could be clothed in sackcloth. Why would that be? Well, if you know your history at all, during the time, by the way, what do we call that time period, typically? The Dark Ages. Why do we call it the Dark Did the sun not shine as brightly? Of course not. Was it just always clouded? Did they just all live in Michigan? <laughs> no, of course not, you know. It wasn't talking about a physical darkness, but a spiritual darkness because the common people, the the population was withheld from reading the Word of God. Now, think about this, because we're going to show a balance. On one end, during this time of persecution, the Bible was more and more restricted to the clergy, to to the professionals, to the scholars, to the priests, and the common people had less and less light and access to Scripture. And what happened was, in a reverence for Scripture, it was so reverence that you couldn't touch it. You couldn't be around it. Only these special people could have it. And you know what they say about power? It corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And what you see is the corruption of the Christian church when the light of the Word of God is not given freely. Abuse is starting coming in. And and it doesn't begin out loud, but as you go down through the ages, it gets more and more and more and more intense and obscene, uh, obscene, these these persecutions of the so-called Christian church. And the more and more intense, and the farther they would get off course from Scripture, the less and less they wanted people to have access to Scripture because they would see the difference. So the Scripture was withheld from the people in a guise of of reverence for it, but in reality, it was for control of the people. Okay, Now think about this. During this time, of course, the Bible was not wholly exterminated. But it would be protected and perpetrated uh, only by the most subtle and daring of believers. I think of our, uh, those, those faithful Walden scenes, you know. And those, those, those precious reformers who would, who would for, their very, for their lives, would, would hide at night and copy little pieces of Scripture and just keep it going, keep it going, and, and kind of have, they would sew them into their clothing and just kind of sneak little copies of the Bible, you know. And I think of the way we treat Scripture now compared with what it took to get it here, right? People would give their lives for just a portion, just to have the ability to read the Word of God for themselves. What a precious privilege they saw it as. And it had a power. By the way, that influence started fueling up what is now known as the Protestant Reformation. The light continued to creep out, and a, and a reform movement came back and said, folks, we're way off course here. As soon as you see the Scripture, we're nowhere near where it needs to be. We need to reform, right? Now, I want you to notice something. Revelation chapter 11 again, verse 7. It brings us to the close of this time period. It says, when they finish their testimony, so this time of testimony during sackcloth and ashes, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So they've been ministering for 1,260 years in sackcloth and, and, and underground, but had been powerful during that time. 
At the close, however, another beast will rise up and just absolutely strike down dead this measuring rod, this word of God. What in the world was that? Well, if you know your history, at the close of that 1,260 years, another power was rising up. So fed up with the abuses and the persecution and the oppression of the so-called Christian faith that they said, you know what? We're done with Christianity, with spirituality. We're done with anything religious at all. And they literally threw the baby out with the bathwater. Of course, if you recall, when the papacy came to a startling end with a deadly wound, you recall the Pope was sitting on his throne and in walked a general from a particular army. Does anyone recall his name? Berthier. On behalf of the nation of whom? France. If you really want a fascinating history, the very first European people to give secular power over, to the state power over to the church, were the Franks, right, with Clovis, way back in 508. Fascinating. And now it is that same France who is so fed up with what the, quote, church leaders have done, with the abuses, with the persecutions, the taxations, the ridiculous ruining of the people, that they say, we're done with you and your God. And in an effort to upend the Roman papacy, they threw out religion itself and instead enthroned the goddess of reason. We're going to be secular. We're going to have no religious influence whatsoever. You can take your Bible and literally they would burn them. Outlaw scripture. We are a godless nation serving only bowing down to only one God and that is the goddess of reason. Our minds, we are secular humanists, basically. So in an overcorrection of what the abuses of the papacy had done, they now take it to its nth degree and say, all right, we'll have no Bible, no God, no Jesus, no nothing. Now, referring to this revolution, we call this, by the way, the, the French what? Revolution. They're going to completely change the fabric of society, from a religious base to a reason base. That's what their thinking was. By the way, an interesting comment. You find this on page 265 of The Great Controversy, which I'm going to, I can't make you go home and read something, but I can certainly guilt you if you don't. (laughs) It's It's a beautiful snowy day outside. You're not going anywhere else, right? Make a fire, have some hot cider. And read that chapter in the Great Controversy, the Bible and the French Revolution. You'll understand Revelation 11 better than I could ever explain it if you just read that particular chapter this afternoon. But referring to the revolution against the papacy and Christianity as a whole in France during the late 18th century, Ellen White insightfully comments, and again, this is Great Controversy, page 265, one sentence, that terrible outbreaking... Because, by the way, once the standard of morality that is given in the Scripture is gone and you just do what you think is right from a human standpoint, it is a quick drop to the bottom. And boy, did France experience that. You back, secular history books, Encyclopedia Britannica, look up some of the stuff that went on in the French Revolution seeking their God of reason. 
It was humanism, which, of course, humans apart from God are being led by Satan. Right? It was a horrible scene. That terrible outbreaking, she says, was but the, and listen to this wording, was but the legitimate result of Rome's suppression of the Scriptures. Think about it. What they did makes sense from a human standpoint. Because if this is what the Bible is really all about, if this is what religion, we want nothing to do with it. And so they swing all the way over here, and it's the, perp- uh, it's the proportional counterbalance to the papal persecution is the French Revolution. And in both instances, the word of God was either disregarded or, in fact, made illegal. Fascinatingly enough. And again, Revelation chapter 11 is giving us the history of the word of God as it pertains to the time of judgment. We're going to come to it in just a minute. Now, just a few short years, because as we continue in chapter 11, watch this now. Again, in verse 7, talking about this French Revolution. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Now, geographically, are we talking about Sodom and Egypt? No. Not physically or geographically, but spiritually, they're Sodom and Egypt. Sodom and Egypt are the most godless... uh, References you can make to people groups prior in the Bible, right? Remember when Moses said, I'm here on, the, on behalf of Jehovah, let my people go. And the Pharaoh says, who is this Jehovah that I should fear him? I know no God, right? Sodom, the wickedness that's rampant, he said, it's like that. Verse 9, then those from those people's tribes and tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days. Of course, this is prophetically, three and a half years. And not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. They're going to mock them, ridicule them, leave them for dead out in the streets. Just run roughshod over the scriptures. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Right? In their minds, those prophets are the reason they were tormented. So they're so happy it's all done, right? But now look at verse 11. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. So apparently there's a resurgence of the Scripture. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. You know what's fascinating is that as soon as this goddess of reason was enthroned and everyone had agreed to go with a secular, humanist, atheistic mindset, immediately the stability and morality, which already had been suffering under the papal persecutions, was completely withheld, complete without, without any restraint. And the spiral down was not just gradual, it was plummeting. And literally, just over three years, they came back, the French legislators, and repealed those laws outlining Scripture, outlawing Scripture, and said, all right, we've got to give people something. Because these people are going crazy. It completely destroyed the fabric of the nation. 
and the Bible was given life again, and people picked up the Bible, and it's now that they have seen this extreme and that extreme, they were basically ready to be objective to say, what does this Word of God say? And from that, it was fascinating. We're talking about the very, very end of the 1700s, early 1800s. And just after the French Revolution, you start to see a resurgence of Scripture reading like never before. You start to see the establishment of missionary societies and Bible societies. You remember the, ever heard the term of a Bible society? Right? When they would, just wanted to get the Word of God out to people, they would print them in mass, and they would just flood the world with the Scriptures. That's what happened after the experience of the French Revolution. People said what the papacy did was wrong, what the French Revolution did was wrong, but whatever this is, this is the standard of what's right. It started to flood the world with light, fascinatingly enough. Now, it finishes here with verse 14. The second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And that's a reference to the seventh trumpet being sounded, which we read here in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. Notice the tenses. The nations were angry, your wrath has come, present tense, and the time of the dead that they should be what? Judged, right? Now we're talking about the beginning of the commencement of the most holy place judgment, the pre-advent judgment is now being alluded to. That you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So notice the reward for the righteous and punishment for the wicked is established when God opens these books and begins to judge, which begins in 1844, the conclusion of the prophecy of the 1,260 years takes us up to 1798. It's a sequence that leads right up until the most holy place ministry. By the way, how do we know that this is a transition to the most holy place? Look at verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened. Now remember, he opens up with this temple imagery in Revelation 11. Take this rod and measure the temple, right? But now, specifically, what aspect of the temple are we looking at? Then the temple of God was open in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. Where's the ark of the covenant? In the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. Revelation chapter 10 talks about the believers being greatly disappointed and then rightly realigned to an understanding that in 1844, Jesus did not come to the earth as king, but he transitioned to the most holy place as high priest to do a work of judgment. Revelation chapter 11 then gives the history of this standard of the judgment, which is the word of God. How it was treated during the time of the papal persecution of 1,260 years, how it was revolted against in the French Revolution, and then how afterwards it came out shining bright for the whole world to see. Friends, we have no problem having access to Scripture anymore. The light is available. The standard is there. The question is, how are we measured up to it? It's the question of the judgment. It's the question of the judgment. By the way, I find this fascinating. I just want to throw it in there. That the Word of God is authoritative as the Son of God himself. Okay? Let me explain. In Jesus Christ, 
By the way, the Apostle John, in his earlier book, the Gospel of John, referred to Jesus Christ as what? The Word. In the beginning was the Word. Right? He was talking about Jesus Christ. He's the Word in flesh or incarnate, right? Where this is the Word of God, but inscribed, written down. So we call this the written Word and that the living Word. However, I don't like that distinction because this one's alive too. According to Scripture, it's living and active, right? Now, Think about this. The Bible, is it God's book or is it man's book? Who wrote it? Who inspired it? <laughs> God inspired it. Men wrote it. Right? It was his divine ideas put in human language, yes? Jesus Christ, divine or human? Yes, is the answer to that, yes. 100% God in flesh and 100% humanity. It's beautiful. Now think about this. Jesus Christ had a ministry, basically in sackcloth, afflicted, smitten by God, right? For three and a half years, and then received a deadly wound. But after three days, rose again and ascended into heaven. It's exactly what you see in Revelation describing with the word of God. That it had a time of prophetic three and a half years, time, times, and half a time, when it ministered but under duress in sackcloth. But at the end, something rose up to smash it down and kill it. But after a few days, God revived his word again and in his power to light the world. Friends, the judge, Jesus is moved into the high priestly ministry to judge the world, and the standard of his judgment is the word of God. The Son of God is judging the world by the standard of the word of God. Does that make sense? We, I believe, are living in the time when Jesus is ministering in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And the standard of our lives must not be this world, but this word. This, I believe, is the message and import of Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 10 gets us to the, oh, instead of Christ coming the second time, no, it's his, it's his work in the most holy place as the heavenly judge. And then the measuring read, the standard of that judgment, is the word of God, the testimony that he's given in this word, which is equal in authority with Jesus himself. Fascinating. The scripture is the measuring rod John was instructed to take and measure the temple and those who worship therein. It's God's standard of quality, the very transcript of his character. So here's the concluding point, I believe, from Revelation chapter 11. If we want to be God's faithful people in this, the time of his judgment, we must order our lives not after the standard of this world, but on the word that he's given us, the very word of God. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.